Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast we chat with Bill Ramsey on his time flying and displaying Vulcan XH558. As well as a Vulcan, Bill also chats about flying and displaying the Grob Tutor, his time on the Tornado GR1, and also an interesting story about his time on the Harrier. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate at aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. So Bill, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, well, for me it all started actually through my mum, which is perhaps a bit surprising. She was a librarian uh, and I, even from a young age, was a really keen reader. And so she used to bring books home from the library for me to read. And eventually one day she came home with, I think it, it must have been Reach for the Sky or something like that. So I read about Douglas Bader and that, that kind of kicked it off. So then it was Bob Stanford, Tuck, Guy Gibson, Adolf Gallant, then you know, McCudden, Ball, Manick. Uh, and I was kind of hooked from, from that point, I'm afraid. <laughs> so what year did you join your RAF? And could you tell us some of the aircraft you trained on? Uh, yeah, I mean, a bit... I mean, before that, the sort of classic route to, to the Air Force, I joined the cadets as soon as possible. Um, I got my uh, cadet gliding wings as the age of 14 or something like that, won a flying scholarship, uh, learned to fly. The only reason I'm telling you about the, getting the flying scholarship was that the bank of mum and dad topped up with 30 hours from the Air Force and with another five hours, which gave me a PPL, uh, which I didn't use again until I flew 558, because perhaps strangely... The, uh, the the baseline license to fly X-ray Hotel 558 was a single-engine piston private pilot's license. <laughs> uh, so I yeah, joined the Air Force at the age of 18 in 1972. Uh, I was given 10 hours on the chipmunk uh, because I'd done the, uh, the flying scholarship instead of 30. Uh, and then I uh, trained on the Jet Provost at Linton on Ouse uh, with one of your previous interviewees, uh, Bob Marston. Firstly on the Mark III and then the latter part of the course on the Mark V. Uh, you have to understand that what I really wanted to do was to be a fighter pilot, but I didn't really work hard enough at Linton on Ouse. So I found myself going multi-engine, which was not the idea at all. Um, however, from that point, I went to a place called RF Oakington near Cambridge, learned the skills of multi-engine flying uh, on the Vickers Varsity. Uh, and having by that time realised that the only way I might get back towards fast jets was to fly something which was ca- camouflaged, a jet and drop bombs, I volunteered to fly the Vulcan. Uh, so yes, that was my, my short uh, flying training history. So could you tell us a bit about your time on the Vulcan? Uh, yes, I was, I was posted from Oakington to number 35 squadron. Uh, I was posted at number 35 squadron, which at the time was in Cyprus. So that was going to be jolly good, a 20-year-old bachelor going to Cyprus. Um, but unfortunately, the Turks chose that time to invade. So during the time between me being posted to the Vulcan and me completing the conversion unit, number 35 squadron came back to Scampton so I found myself at Scampton and I started uh, the, the operational conversion unit in early 1975 uh, spent my three years at Scampton flying the Vulcan uh, with a very fine a very fine crew my captain was also a flying officer so at the time we were probably the only flying officer front crew in the V-Force so most unusual with a b- bunch of really experienced guys down the back um and uh, yeah, we had we had three uh, really good years uh, practicing the the strike role, which is what the airplane was primarily for, but also a little bit of the conventional role. And actually, during my time there, the squadron took on a third role, uh, which was maritime uh, radar reconnaissance. I also see you have a few hours on Harrier. How did this come about? Uh, yes, well, I, all the time that I was on the Vulcan, I spent all the time talking to anybody who would listen, saying I want to fly fast jet. 
from the Vulcan. So I, I, I didn't do a Vulcan's captain's tour because they started to take me to heart. So I went off to be a, a flying instructor on the Jet Provost, uh, which I did for three years. I spent all my time there saying I want to be a fast jet pilot. Uh, and then one day my boss called me in and said, right, that's it, you're posted. Um, so I, I thought I'd just test the water and I said, how many engines has it got? And he said, one engine. And I thought, oh no, I'm going to get a punishment tour on the Jet Provost again. And he said, but it's got four nozzles, uh, which meant that I had been uh, posted to do what's called fast jet crossover training, uh, to go from multi-engine to uh, fast jets, which is what I wanted. Uh, and I'd been posted before I'd even started the training to the Harrier. Um, I mean, it was quite unusual to get fast jet crossover in those days. It was more unusual to get posted to a single-seat aircraft. It was very unusual to get posted to the Harrier. Uh, so it's very exciting. So off I went. I did the fast jet crossover training on the Hawk, on the tactical weapons unit, as I'm sure others that you've interviewed have described, which was great because here I was dropping bombs, shooting guns, you know, doing their combat. It was wonderful. Uh, and I went to the Harrier OC, which uh, was hard work. Uh, it, was, yeah, it was really hard work. Uh, for me, um, for, for, for a number of reasons. But uh, I completed the operational conversion unit, which is how I've got the odd number of 82 hours. Uh, and the guys uh, on, on the unit said, OK, we'll just want you to do another two trips just to polish it up, and then you can go off to number one squadron, which is where I was posted. Uh, and I went and sat down, and I thought, actually, I think I'm probably going to kill myself doing this. <laughs> uh, my, my, we'd just moved into a, a derelict house. My wife had just produced our first son. I was... I was exceptionally tired I just thought actually this doesn't make sense uh, so I said no thank you so that's how I came to do 80 odd hours on the Harry that's very interesting but then you also managed to get um, onto the tornado yeah, could you talk us through this uh, yes that was um, after the after the Harry the Air Force uh, told me to go and sit down for a little while while they thought about what to do with me and I thought about what I wanted uh, to me, it made perfect sense that as I was a nuclear bomber pilot already and they just taught me how to be a ground attack pilot, the new Tornado was a good mixture of them both. Uh, they initially thought it would be a jolly good idea if I went and flew the F-4 Phantom. Um, however, eventually, good old Air Force, they said, OK, off you go, go and fly the Tornado. So that, that's what occurred. So did you ever fly on large exercises? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's interesting. I... I I very neatly throughout my career avoided all wars and all major exercises. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I missed the Falklands War because I was busy doing the fast jet crossover. Uh, I missed Gulf War One because I was an, I was a squadron commander on the Tornado conversion unit at that point. Uh, and along the way, I I, I, I never partook. I guess when you say major exercises, you mean things like red flag and green flag and stuff. Uh, no, I was due to go on a green flag halfway through my tour in Germany, but that coincided with the birth of my second son. Uh, my squadron commander very kindly said I could stay in Germany for the birth of my son rather than go to green flag. Although, in, in preparation for that question, I, I was looking through my logbook of the time, and in reality, life in Germany was pretty much one long major exercise <laughs> at the time. So how many hours did you get on Tornado, and do you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I, eventually, I, well, I, I did uh, I did a tour on 20 Squadron in RF Germany, which was absolutely at the forefront. Well, some of the aeroplanes had delivery mileage on them when we started flying the aeroplane. Uh, so it was a brand new force. It was a brand new concept. Uh, people came from, apart from my sort of background, had come from Buccaneer, Phantom and Jaguar. And each of them thought that their way of doing it was the right way. Uh, whereas, in fact the truth was that Tornado was a completely different we weapon system and actually it was greater than the sum of the other three so we, we developed uh, all the new tactics as uh, as uh, as time rolled on 
various bits of equipment on the aeroplane came into use. So during my time, we first fired the Mauser cannon, which was a, wow. which was good fun. We did the development work for dropping uh, paveway weapons with uh, at that time with the guidance from uh, a pod flown on a Buccaneer aircraft, which was an unusual sort of <laughs> formation. Um, we developed the low-level uh, IMC tactics. Uh, which were in the event the tactics which were used in Gulf War One with mixed results. You were also an instructional command examiner. Could you talk us through this? Uh, yes. After my, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll go to one of your other questions, which was about an A2 QFI, which will probably help matters. Mm-hmm. Um, QFI, qualified flying instructor in our, in the RF, uh, has a categorisation system. Uh, so once uh, a brand new flying instructor uh, has qualified with the Central Flying School, he uh, is categorised as a B2 or a probationary flying instructor. A uh, short while later, after a test, uh, he becomes a B1 flying instructor, which means an average flying instructor. And then a little bit later, with a bit more experience and a much stiffer test, uh, both in the air and on the ground, then he can become an A2, which is an above-average instructor. So A2 is kind of what people aspire to. And yes, there was an A1, but that was only for the sort of geeks who wanted to be flying instructors for the rest of their lives. Um, so yes, yeah, so when I was on the Jet Provost, I became an A2 flying instructor, which helped my quest to get to fast jets. Um, there, there is one other category, which is called competent to instruct. So once you have a category, when you change to a different aeroplane, you can be competent to instruct. Uh, on the Tornado, I was a squadron QFI and an, an, a conversion unit instructor, so I was competent to instruct during that time. Uh, and then after all of that, uh, uh, I eventually, in the mid-90s, uh, was uh, posted back to examining wing at Central Flying School. Uh, their job is to uh, ensure the standards of pure flying and flying instruction across the three services uh, and with uh, foreign air forces when, they invi- when, when invited. Uh, so and therefore my instructional category at that point was command examiner. So you also flew the Grob. What was this like to fly? Uh, the, the, I, well, I'd never, apart from the Chipmunk, I had very little experience of light aircraft, so it was it was it was new to me. Uh, it, it was what I did after I'd left the, Air, the regular service in the Air Force. Uh, I became a, a full-time reservist, training flying instructors on the Grob. Um, it was in lots of ways the, the ideal elementary flying training aeroplane so it was very light uh, from the Air Force's point of view it didn't consume much petrol so it was very um, it was a little bit underpowered uh, but it was a useful vehicle to, to give young student pilots their first taste of aviation and the Air Force used it to, uh, to uh, look at those students during their time on the aeroplane and during that time they would be streamed to fast jet multi-engine or uh, rotary wing you also became the Grob display pilot. Um, how did this come about? Well, it was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but very early on during this time, but bearing in mind by this time I was 55, full-time reservist, uh, quite early on in my time uh, on S- Central Flying School Tutor Squadron, uh, at the morning Met Brief, which happens every day on a flying squad in the RF, the boss kind of does par- reads Paris notices. Uh, and the Paris notice on this occasion was would anybody like to be in the competition to become the display pilot uh, for the 2009 season so really out of complete mischief I put my hand hand up because I knew they weren't going to let a 55 year old full time reservist be in the contest Uh, to my surprise they did 
uh, at which point I realised actually I'd have to win the competition <laughs> uh, and as it happens I, I did and I, I displayed the aeroplane for the next two years So how did you go about putting a display together? For the, for the Grob uh, I, I set about it to start with I made three columns what did the Grob do well in terms of aerobatics what did it do averagely and what did it do badly uh, the what it did badly was quite long because the aeroplane was quite underpowered as an aerobatic display aeroplane uh, what it did averagely was another short, short list and the really short list was what did it do well uh, and the, the one unique point the aeroplane had at the time was that you could do flick or accelerated rolls in it uh, which uh, no other RF aeroplane at the time could do so that was a unique point so that was going to be in the display uh, and also because it's light and slow it could display closer to the crowd than the fast jets so it could display at 150 rather than 230 metres uh, which meant that I could stay, with it being slow, I could stay quite close to the crowd. So I, just, so I built the display around staying close to the crowd uh, and with quite a lot of flick rolls in it. Um, the other thing I decided was that I would try to display the aeroplane down at its base display height of 500 feet throughout, uh, rather than starting very high, very fast and trading energy as you came down, which meant that was great fun for the pilot, uh, but actually the audience couldn't see you. Um, <laughs> But if you try to do display the aeroplane constantly at its baseline of uh, 500 feet, it was very difficult to keep the speed going, to keep the energy going. So there were 21 or so manoeuvres in the six-minute display, and each time, if you didn't do it, the aeroplane lost about half a knot or a knot, which doesn't sound much, but in the end, yeah. if you didn't do it very carefully, uh, then you'd run out of energy and have to stop, which happened to me on one occasion at Biggin Hill on a hot day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, that, that's how I, so that's how I decided... I'd uh, format the display and then I, I actually took a model of a Grob Tutor probably or something like that and I'd lay down in front of my fireplace uh, with a nice straight edge, so display line and, and really just went, sat down and thought about it then went out and tried those things in the air firstly up at above 3,000 feet uh, and then so settled on the display sequence at 3,000 feet which is the RF rules uh, and then once that was settled and it was agreed by my supervisors uh, then we brought the display down to 1,500 feet, tried it there, worked 1,000 feet and finally down to 500 feet. So did you have a favourite manoeuvre in the sequence? Yes, I, I say, the, 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 the flick rolls meant that you could roll the aeroplane at a fast rate for the tutor, yeah. as opposed to very slowly. Uh, the, my predecessor, a uh, chap called Andy Priest, had developed a, a flick roll pointing at the ground. Uh, which we did, uh, which he did. At, you had to do at the start of the sequence because it needed a certain amount of height. Uh, so I, the first year, I thought actually that's a bit that's a bit grown up for me. So the first year, I gained experience, and the second year, I, I put that manoeuvre in at the start of the display. So that was that was pretty exciting. So we would arrive on what they call uh, the uh, B axis, so pointing at the crowd, pull up, stall turn, and then point the aeroplane directly at the ground, 1500 feet above it, and then do a big 360 flip roll which uh, took me a while to get around to thinking was a really good idea. But, uh, yeah, no, that, 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 that was great fun because it, it actually had to work every time. <laughs> so did you have any favourite shows you displayed at? I, well, I, I, I did about uh, 60 displays each year, so it was, it was quite busy. Um, I suppose possibly the favourite would be, um, in terms of the air display, was was been invited to display at the Royal International Air Tour in the tutor because that's uh, that didn't happen very often. So yeah, taking the tutor out was good. 
But apart from that, the, I mean, the, the nice thing about flying the light aeroplane was that we landed at all the same places as, as all the other uh, civilian participants uh, and stayed in all the same hotels. So I would hang out with uh, the Paul Bonhams and Gerald Coopers and all of these John Remains, all these stars of the airshow circuit, and listen to people who knew what they were doing. So it was, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, the, I think actually the social side of it, you know, talking to proper display pilots was good. So it sounds like you had a brilliant time then, two years. I, I very much enjoyed it. And, you know, in amongst all the other things, you know, people say, you know, was the Vulcan the best? Was the Red Arrows the best? Was the Lancaster? In terms of personal satisfaction, the, perhaps surprisingly, the Tutor was, it was probably the one. Bill, could you talk us through the background of the Vulcan and XH558 itself? Uh, yeah, the Vulcan, uh, the original Vulcan uh, B1, came about as an air ministry requirement for an aeroplane pretty much which could fly twice as high twice as fast twice as far as its predecessors like the Lancaster its most uh, important requirement was that it had a big enough bomb bay to carry the new nuclear weapon which is why these airplanes have enormous bomb bays Um, and uh, three companies came up uh, with uh, designs uh, which became known as the V-Force, so the Vulcan, the Victor, and the Valiant. Uh, the Victor was the kind of high-risk version of it, so that's why it looks like a star cruiser still. Uh, the Valiant was the sort of low-tech one, and the Vulcan was kind of in the middle, but very unusual because of the uh, uh, the delta wing configuration of, of the aeroplane. Uh, it first uh, flew around about 53, 54 uh, appeared at the Farnborough Air Show, where it's uh, with, in the hands of Rody Falk, mm-hmm. uh, where it famously rolled. I mean, it must have it must have looked like the USS Enterprise was arriving to the guys and girls <laughs> at that point. Uh, the B1 uh, soldiered on for a number of years, and then improvements were made uh, to the aeroplane, uh, to the electrical system, and various other pieces of it. And the B2 variant came along, uh, of which X-ray Hotel was the first one, I think, delivered to the RF in 1960. Uh, the B-2s, the, the role of the aeroplane was as a high-level bomber. Uh, as the B-2s uh, rolled along, the Russian air defences got better, the Soviet, uh, the Warsaw Pact defences got better, uh, and so the aeroplane was forced to go down into a low-level role. Uh, fatigue stopped the Valiant carrying on. Uh, the Victor, I don't think, was particularly suitable to the low-level role, so it became a tanker, but the Vulcan soldiered on. Uh, right the way through the 1970s into the early 1980s. It was about to, uh, it was in the course of being retired at that point, uh, when of course the Falklands War occurred, uh, and uh, Vulcan 617 with my, my old senior captain Martin Withers achieved fame by bombing Port Stanley. Um, a couple after that, the aeroplane basically um, was taken out of service, two were kept in service, uh, for the what's called the Vulcan display flight, one of which was X-ray Hotel 558, uh, because it had the least uh, fatigue usage of any of the Vulcans uh, that were left at that point. It did that for a number of years in the hands of Paul Milliken and David Thomas. Uh, before uh, all good things came to an end, in I think the early 1990s, um, the airframe was rescued by a chap called David Wharton, who took it to uh, Bruntingthorpe from whom it was purchased by the trust I, I don't know the date exactly but in the you know, mid to late 90s with the view to restoring it to flight which is what uh, Dr Robert Fleming and the team did uh, successfully Bill, can you talk us through some of the processes of, of getting it back into the air? 
Uh, yeah, the, well, the first thing was obviously was to come up with an engineering plan and get the approval of the uh, both the Civil Aviation Authority uh, and a, a number of companies, in fact, who had responsibility for aspects of airworthiness of the aeroplane and the engine. So that would be BA Systems, Rolls-Royce and Marshalls of Cambridge. Uh, they obviously signed up to the plan along the way, but the first thing that had to be done was the aircraft had to be stripped, right, everything, everything taken out of it and stripped back to just the bare metal of the airframe. So I f- first saw the aeroplane at the start of 2001 when all that was left was the nut was shiny metal. Uh, that was all e- x-rayed and tested and deemed suitable to carry on. And so from that point, the process of rebuilding the aeroplane uh, came about through a bunch of uh, volunteers and really excellent engineers. Um, along the way, the, the, a lot of weight was stripped out of the aeroplane. Uh, so the radar, which lives in the dome, you can see there, was removed from the front together with the terrain-following radar, which is the little nipple I hope perhaps you can see on the camera. So weight from the front, the equipment associated with that inside the cabin was taken out and compensate weight-wise at the back of the aeroplane, which is where the electronic warfare equipment was, which were not little uh, solid-state stuff like now. These were big dustbins full of valves. Uh, That took out about six tonnes of weight from the aeroplane. That's a lot. Uh, Yeah, until eventually it got towards the end of, uh, let me see, 2007, when the aeroplane first flew again at Bruntingthorpe, uh, successfully. So when did the first fly publicly? Uh, the aircraft, and again, I'd struggle to tell you the exact date because I wasn't involved at the time, but it displayed in, I think, late 2008, mm-hmm. um, but then completed uh, uh, eight, eight, eight full seasons. So can you tell us your story of how you actually joined the team? Well, again, it was a bit of luck, really. <laughs> uh, I had, uh, if you rewind back to uh, the short time I spent on BBMF, the captain of the Lancaster's chap called David Thomas, who's also a very well-known Vulcan display pilot and was going to be the first uh, uh, captain of 558 after restoration. And even at that point, he was talking about, we'll get together, we'll have a small crew and we'll go and fly the Vulcan bill. Uh, I think my view at the time was, I'll let it fly for two or three years and see whether or not it's still flying. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, anyway, that, that all coincided with me doing the tutor display. I finished the tutor display at the end of 2010. And... Uh, I was actually attending a lunch to say goodbye to an old friend, which was also attended by another old friend, a chap called Mike Pollitt, who at the time was the uh, operations director for the Vulcan. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come and fly the Vulcan? Uh, Actually, I thought he'd had too many beers and I didn't expect anything to come of it whatsoever. Uh, However, he meant it, and I had a phone call from Martin saying, come and talk to us. And, um, yeah, so subsequently in... uh, Around about June 2011, I found myself at Bruntingthorpe and uh, climbing back into a Vulcan again. But that was a, a nice feeling. Well, it was, <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise, really, because it was Cold War Jets Day. And the whole idea was that I would, uh, the aeroplane had flown in early in the day and that I was going to do my first trip after everybody had gone home. <laughs> uh, but so, of course, when we got out, the aeroplane was towed out to the runway at, at Bruntingthorpe. And, of course... To my horror, I had to fight my way through 5,000 people who were all waiting to see 558 take off. Uh, so it was a bit tense. Wow. So could you talk us through some of the training you had to do? Uh, it, was, it was fairly short, really. I mean, every season with the, the aeroplane we did, uh, the air crew did t- two days of, of, gra- of technical ground school, uh, just going through all of the systems on the aeroplane. Uh, 
to make sure that we hadn't forgotten it. Uh, so uh, I, I attended that two-day ground school. I spent a lot of time uh, with my head inside the aircrew technical manual. Uh, and like all, each member of the crew, I had to complete what's called an essential knowledge quiz to make sure that I really did know uh, what the, the important numbers were. Mm-hmm. So where were you best when you were doing this? Uh, the airplane at this point had moved to uh, Doncaster Airport, where it stayed for, uh, for the rest of its, its flying life. Uh, I still had a day job at that point with uh, flying, flying the tutor, which was good for keeping up my private pilot's license, which you remember back at the start I said I had. Yeah. <laughs> but was there any simulators in place uh, to even practice on the jet? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, they'd gone. There used to be Vulcan simulators, but they'd long since disappeared. There is a Vulcan simulator for anybody who might like to fly on, which is up just near Manchester, the Vulcan experience. I've done that. I can recommend it if you fancy a good day out. Brilliant. So, Bill, can you talk us through your first flight? Uh, back with 558. Yes, that was, as I say, that was at the, the, uh, the Cold War Jets day. It was simply uh, get into the aeroplane with the training captain, Kevin Rumens. Uh, I would do the takeoff. My brief was to level off at... 1500 feet and 200 knots and I think I achieved about 2500 feet and 300 knots uh, bearing in mind I was flying the Tudor at the time which had less horsepower than my car it was a bit of a surprise uh, and there was almost no fuel in the aeroplane well the plan was just to fly a few turns uh, I think we did a couple of approaches at Leicester Airport uh, and then to go back to Doncaster where I was pretty sure Kev would do the landing because it was quite a big crosswind but to my horror uh, he left it to me, which uh, we, we we got away with, so it's fine. <laughs> so, did you have very strict rules from the CEA being an ex-military jet? Uh, yes, they, I mean the airplane operated under what's called a permit to fly. Uh, they constantly scrutinised what we did, both in terms of engineering and in the way we flew the airplane. Uh, we had stringent rules for the, for the display. Uh, in terms of heights and uh, not speeds, but the heights and the uh, distance we could fly in relationship to the crowd, um, we weren't allowed to fly around at low level, which is where we did most of our transiting between displays uh, above 250 knots, uh, just in case somebody thought we were an intruder. I think, um, without permission from the CAA, which was which was fine. But I mean, the Vulcan was happy at 240 250 knots for for transiting but slower than that was it became it didn't really like that no what did it feel like to take off in the vulcan well that first day was a real shocker um and then gradually as uh, as i gained experience back with the airplane and the same was true the guys had only been flying it for two or three years for not not very many hours each year so we, we we gradually gained experience and confidence with what we were doing uh, then we got into the big display takeoffs that people remember. Everybody remembers Kev's display takeoff at Riyadh in 2015. They weren't always quite like that. I was in the other seat, so I had the best view in the house, by the way. I can imagine. Um, they weren't always quite like that, but we got, we got more confidence in, in the sort of thing that we could do in the aeroplane. Mm-hmm. So what were the debriefs like? Were they extended because it was an older jet? Um, again, as we gained experience, we got better and better. Uh, more professional, actually, I think is what I should say. Uh, one of the things like, you know, I'd come from doing the job with the Red Arrows where every single trip was debriefed very, very uh, professionally and in depth uh, and that's how we ended up debriefing to make sure that uh, we, we learnt from what we'd done that day So how many flying hours did you actually get before you were let loose to the public, let's say? 
it, it, it wasn't a great number in the as a, acting as a co-pilot in that, in that, uh, at that time. Um, so after the trip I did with Kevin back to Doncaster, the next time I flew the aeroplane was with Kevin uh, going into uh, transit from Doncaster to the Waddington Air Show. They did the displays and then I flew with the senior pilot Martin uh, on the transit from Waddington to Yeovilton. Uh, which was my check-out with the senior pilot to, to act as a co-pilot. Um, I acted as a co-pilot from that point for uh, displays and transits uh, for the next... Uh, until the end of the next season, so two years, in effect, or year and a half, uh, before I became a captain and got my own display approval. So going back a bit, what was the actual role of a co-pilot then? In 558, the single most important role was to monitor what the flying pilot was doing during the display. Uh, you have to understand that uh, by the time we finished, we were all captains on the aeroplane, so it wasn't quite like a captain co-pilot, it was two captains. Um, but whoever wasn't flying the aeroplane monitored very carefully speeds, heights, uh, just to make sure we didn't uh, make a mistake. But apart from that, uh, it was to help with the navigation. We had very Gucci um, GPS-driven move- moving maps on our iPad minis on our knees. Uh, and most importantly, again, importantly, to monitor the fuel system, which is very complicated on this aeroplane. I can imagine, yes. <clears throat> so was this a full-time role? Uh, no, uh, what, flying 558? No, not for me. It, it was uh, not for any of the, Only Martin Withers, the senior pilot, was full-time uh, employed by the Trust. Uh, two of the other captains uh, were R, um, pilots with Virgin Atlantic, oh. so they were there when their roster let them... And the other pilot uh, was uh, a non-Vulcan pilot. He was the a test pilot. He was the chief test pilot of Rolls-Royce. So uh, he kept us on our toes. <laughs> so a bit more technical. What was that um, like to fly? Uh, well, people always attribute a kind of uh, you know, god-like fighter pilot, like, uh, fighter uh, likeness to the aeroplane. Uh, it's not that. But for an aeroplane of its uh, size, it's massively agile. Uh, as you can see, huge wings, an awful lot of power. Uh, so it was, it was, it was definitely, it was a pilot, it was a pilot's aeroplane. It wasn't an F-16. Uh, but, you know, the empty, this aeroplane weighed about 100, just over 100,000 pounds with not much fuel in it, which we usually had. It's about 120,000 pounds. The engines produced about 70,000 pounds of thrust. So actually, it's, a, it's for a big aeroplane, it's a lot of a lot of thrust to the weight. Yeah. So can you tell us some of the strengths and weaknesses of actually how she flew? Uh, as a display aeroplane, uh, the strengths are it's big, noisy, impressive, smoky. Um, it, it, it doesn't really have any weaknesses. One of its, oddly, one of its strengths was also a weakness. Uh, in that because it was designed to fly and be manoeuvrable at high level it has a lot of attributes of a really good glider so once we'd climbed the aeroplane into the big wing overs that everybody wanted to see it was very difficult to get the aeroplane back down to uh, display height without getting an awful lot of speed which meant we couldn't turn so we used to get complaints about the fact that we were so and we took a long time getting down that's because it was designed to work that way (laughs) so did she have any limitations compared to her operational life um, I no, I don't think so. I, we we flew the aeroplane uh, to the same um, G-force limits. No, off the top of my head, I, I, I honestly can't think of any name. 
So did you have any set speeds and heights you had to abide by for the CEA? Uh, our minimum heights for during the display were 500 feet for when we were manoeuvring and 300 feet for when we were flying past in a straight line. Uh, we had heights and speeds for every single point, uh, every manoeuvre that we did for our own protection yeah. <laughs> and, and for the safety of the public. Could you talk us through the cockpit? I mean, it must have changed from its uh, you know, first life in the 50s. Uh, yeah, well, I say this, this, this is a 1960s aeroplane. Um, the key change was we got rid of two navigators, um, which saved a lot of weight and, and, and the equipment that was taken out. Other than that, the aeroplane was mostly pretty authentic, apart from uh, we had to replace the navigators. We had two GPSs, which were built in. Uh, we the, what's called the Smith's military flight system, which was what you'd call an artificial horizon and a compass system, were taken out and replaced by what to me looked like very cheap ones out of a Cessna 150, um, which frankly weren't much use. Um, we had an, an updated radar, uh, an updated radio put in, uh, and there, there were various other you know, small bits and pieces which went in, but it, it, mostly it's a pretty authentic cockpit. Mm-hmm. So was it a comfortable cockpit? No. <laughs> Simple answer. <laughs> no, definitely not. To get up to the pilot seats, uh, first of all, you have to climb through the door, which is uh, just in front of that nose wheel, uh, up a set of steps, climb in. There's another set of steps up to the two pilot seats, two ejection seats. There's a gap about that wide between the seats, so it's a bit of a bit of a wiggle. And once you're in the seat, if you're my height, depending on the seat, you either have to sit like that or like that. So it's, it's very cosy. Yeah. In the back, for the poor old AEO, who was still down there, still a very hot place. Op- operationally, with all the kit, they used to say the, the equipment put out about three kilowatts of heat. Wow. So it's very hot, very dark, very sweaty place. <laughs> so, no, com- comfort and Vulcans, no. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the team go about uh, planning um, uh, a routine? The original sort of Vulcan display, uh, post-restoration... If you looked at it very carefully, in plan form, it's very like the Lancaster one. Uh, and that's because Dave Thomas had just come from the Lancaster. Uh, and it's, uh, it's the obvious way to lay out a display so it keeps the aeroplane in, in front of the crowd. Um, and really, we, we tinkered with it a little bit as we gained experience as we went along uh, and you know, slightly changed the order of doing things. But we, the, the pattern was usually pretty much the same. Did you have two displays to compensate for bad weather or location? The pattern of the display didn't change at all. It was just the, uh, the angle of climb you'd use and the height of the apex for wingovers uh, and the angle of bank you'd use would be less, much less, if the weather was bad. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so apart from that, not much. Occasionally you had to slightly modify the display for different sites. So, for example, Windermere, which is a very hilly, lakey yeah. sort of place with not many straight lines. That was quite a difficult one to do. Some of the seaside places with a small bendy bay, so Scarborough, for example, springs to mind, has been quite a difficult place to display. Mm-hmm. Did the routine change every year? We, we try to change things a little bit year on year. Uh, my s- second year, no, first year, I think, as a... As a, as a display pilot, we uh, changed the arrival to arrive pointing at the crowd as opposed to from the end. Didn't really work very well, to be honest. So we went back to arriving from one end of the crowd or the, or the other. Uh, again, as we 
we, we changed the way we did the displays slightly towards the end uh, in that almost by accident uh, Kevin and I discovered that we could we could enter wing overs a bit faster and get a much higher apex so that by by the end we had what we called the big big wing over which the big wing over uh, which folks saw again at both days at Riyadh uh, which meant we ended up at seven and a half thousand feet wow. right at the end of the display which was great fun to do uh, but the great British weather usually stopped us doing that of course as usual so obviously one of the famous features of Vulcan is the howl. Can you tell us how this happens? No. I <laughs> no, I don't think anybody really knows it. It's, um, uh, I mean, it's the fantastic sort of eerie howling noise the aeroplane makes. It's, it makes it best at about 90% of full power. I don't know why that is. Uh, the people who know these things say it's something to do with the shape of the intakes they, and they liken it to when you blow across the top of a Coke bottle and it makes that strange noise. It does that, but much bigger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. <laughs> <laughs> so how many shores would you fly in a year? Uh, for me, it varied. Um, or I'd fly the aeroplane, and initially it was only about 13 or 14 times a year. It got more towards the end of last year. I think I flew the aeroplane 24 times. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not a huge number of displays. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know it's a big and expensive aeroplane so not every show could 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 afford to have the Vulcan mm-hmm. but uh yeah i mean it, it was it was uh it was we'd all have loved to have flown the aeroplane more uh the aeroplane was only allowed to fly a certain number of hours each year between mm-hmm. servicings so that that was another limitation on on the trust as to how much we could do with it mm-hmm. well, what was your favorite show you flew at Everybody wants to fly at Riyadh display, you know, the star aeroplane at Riyadh, so that was good. We won the As the Crow, being part of the crew that won the uh, As the Crow Flies trophy was great. Uh, displaying at Farnborough, everybody wants to display at Farnborough, yeah. Of course, yeah. Would you ever fly at any special events, like private uh, functions? I mean, no, I don't think people could afford us for private functions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, uh, probably the most special thing I did was leading the two Lancasters around information was probably the most unique thing that i did flying the airplane in formation with the red arrows was obviously good fun i can imagine yeah uh, so yeah no, we, and you know we flew we flew in formation with the f-15s of the liberty wing we had, did some really good stuff going to that because i was going to ask you how did that come about flying with the f-15s that's just the most unusual formation i've seen uh that was crazy that was um it turned out that the base commander colonel novotny i think is his name uh, was a vulcan fan i don't know why uh, and he was, but he was also, I think he was on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere. Anyway, wouldn't it be great if? And I think somebody from the PR department, Richard Clark or somebody, went, got in touch with him and said, well, it could happen uh, because we were going to Clacton, I think, that day. Mm-hmm. So it was on our way. And and uh, Colonel Novotny made it happen. That was brilliant, yeah. <laughs> it was been very special. It was, it was quite a day, yeah. Do you enjoy meeting the public after a show? Uh, yeah, but I mean. It get, the Vulcan was a bit unusual because it was unusual for us to uh, land at an air show so that would only be you know, Waddington, Yeovilton, Riyadh, those sort of things um, but you know, I mean it was, yeah, it's lovely it's, you know, people so the Vulcan, you know, was paid for because people loved it so it was, all, it was you know, say it's part of the job that's not true, it's great, their, their enthusiasm was fantastic So how many hours did you actually fly at? Uh, in the event, I flew uh, 66 times and about 130 hours. So when was your last flight? Uh, my last flight was the last flight she ever did on the 28th of October 2015. Sad day all round, tears in the eyes. Yeah. 
So how did you feel personally that she was never going to fly again? I think, I, th- I think there was a bit of sadness. Uh, we'd known it was... That 2015 was the last season, all of that year. As we got to the end, we were just too, we were way, way too busy to even think about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing lots of things, the Great North Tour, the South Tour, and all the other stuff. Uh, my view is that actually we've probably stopped at the right time. We were beginning, for several reasons. Um, not least that after the tragedy at Shoreham, we could only fly a restricted display, so, which was going to be, a, a, was a pale shadow of our proper display. Um, it would have been bad to go to Riyadh and, and fly a limp display. Uh, and we were starting to have the odd technical issue, which was made me think, well, everybody, most people remember the, the gear not coming down properly at yeah. Presswick. Uh, if it hadn't come down, uh, then that would have been quite a bad outcome. I think so, yeah. So, yeah, my, my, my view was actually it was probably a good time. Uh, I'm the operations director of a charitable group called the People's Mosquito who are doing their utmost to return uh, a DH Mosquito, DH-98 FB-6 variant which is the fighter bomb one, it's the sexy one for people who know that with the four cannon, the four guns in the nose uh, to where it belongs, uh, to put it back on the UK display circuit. So where can we find the People's Mosquito online? Uh, I'm no good at the WWWs but if you search... Uh, People's Mosquito, People's Mosquito Facebook, People's Mosquito Twitter, you will find us there. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Yes, constantly. <laughs> no, that's not true. I, it's uh, Like all of us, we all like talking about it. Uh, although I do like going to the pub in my lo- local countryside area where other people talk about things like farming, just, just by way of a change. Yeah. Well, Bill, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.